0: Welcome market participants to another three things in credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. This week, which featured what one market observer called a confusing data dump, I learned something new. I learned the global standard for inflation targets, 2%, was established not through some landmark scholarly research, Rather, it was set by the New Zealand parliament in 1989, who basically plucked the number out of the air as the last order of business before heading home for Christmas. So there you have it. This week, our three things are, one, the super hawkish skip. Here's what it means for credit. Two, AT1s are back, and they should be. And three, default dynamics. What's relevant in this cycle? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. The Fed speaks and confuses again. A super hawkish skip. That's how the noticeably animated Mike McKee described the Fed's FOMC statement this week on Bloomberg. I got to admit, I had a similarly incredulous reaction. I pinged an investor immediately and said, what is the FOMC doing? So with a bit of time to process the statement, the presser, and street reaction, what does this mean for credit? Here are some observations. One, the pause suggests that we are nearing the end of the hiking cycle. Two, the Fed is signaling that it intends to tighten more than the market was anticipating. It hasn't actually done anything yet except pause for the first time in 10 meetings. And three, the moving pieces suggest the Fed believes a recession is on the way. All right, let's poke around these observations a bit and see what this means for credit. Point one, we're near the end of the hiking cycle. No great revelation there. Even though there is someone, I'm looking at you, Jim Bullard, that believes we need to hike to a six handle. The vast majority of FOMC members say that 500 basis points of hikes puts us within 50 basis points of the eventual terminal rate. Point two, the dot plot. Ugh, the dot plot. We believe the dot plot signals that the Fed has gotten uncomfortable with the general level of ebullience, I love that word, out there in the economy. Think the bull market in stocks, tight credit spreads, buoyant retail sales, credit card borrowing. If it is to whip inflation now, here's looking at you, Jerry Ford, the Fed believes it has to cool the economy, which means remind the increasingly ebullient world you're serious about fighting inflation. Will they actually hike another 50 basis points into a clearly slowing economy? I don't think so. Why? Because credit conditions are tightening, even if many market participants lack the patience to wait for it. Banks really started to tighten credit underwriting nine months ago, and it takes a while for the drag of tightening to flow through the economy, and that while in this cycle is longer due to that stockpile of stimulus. And until tightening presents itself fully, we have the Fed and its dot plot. In point three, if we go by the SOM rule, where a half of 1% rise in the three-month moving average of the unemployment rate puts us in recession, the Fed's latest forecast, where unemployment gets to 4.1% by Q4 of this year, says that's where we are headed. Here's another data point, courtesy of Rosenberg Research. Not once did we see back-to-back years of 1% real GDP growth That's what the Fed is forecasting, by the way, in 2023 and 2024 without being in recession at some point during that interval. That's using data going back to 1902. Now, these are hardly the only markers out there suggesting that we are headed toward recession, but they're pretty good ones. So for credit, all of this is consistent with our long-held view that the Fed has been incentivized to overshoot in response ever since its public relations disaster labeling inflation pressure as transitory. For you, my listeners, now is a time to test or haircut cash flows for a less ebullient environment. All right, our second thing. The AT1 market is back. So in the wake of the Swiss government instructing Credit Suisse to write off its AT1 bonds, more than a few market observers said that event would all but be the end of the AT1 market. Not so fast, we opine. The AT1 market has grown and endured because it met two needs. One, a much-needed layer of non-dilutive, risk-absorbing capital available to global banks, and two, a yieldy way for sophisticated investors to invest in national champion banks. Now, this week we saw two banks, BBVA and Bank of Cyprus, sell the first public AT1 since the Credit Suisse distressed merger. The issues were met with, quote, healthy demand, unquote, according to press reports. The Bloomberg European Bank's COCO Tier 1 total return index, which fell 19% in the wake of the Credit Suisse event, has clawed back about half of that downdraft. Here's what's driving the recovery. First, Europe has held up better economically than expected due to a warmer winter, much lower than expected energy prices, and well targeted fiscal support. While growth is expected to be solidly below trend at least through 2024, more dire scenarios have gotten more remote in their likelihood second big global banks are net beneficiaries in this environment where banking systems are being tested deposit outflows are not that important to the largest banks that are more reliant on market sources of funding big bank revenue streams are less dependent on lending in general and less dependent on vulnerable commercial real estate especially office lending and the larger banks are better positioned to absorb higher regulatory and compliance costs Due to their scale. This is not to say that their earnings are not going to be impacted in the economic contraction, but it is to say that the improved capital positions and risk management practices of the vast majority of the largest banks should be good enough to support AT1 requirements with plenty to spare. All right, on to our third thing default dynamics. So, we had an interesting discussion internally here the other day around the environment and the vulnerability of leveraged finance. We noted that the higher debt service burden on leveraged borrowers and the risks of a revenue hit and margin compression. None of that, of course, is helpful to the sector. We then thought about how the leveraged finance market has evolved, particularly with regard to the insurgence of private credit. This market was far smaller the last time, pre-COVID, credit markets convulsed, that was the fourth quarter of 2015, or blew up, that was the GFC. Leverage private credit is certainly not new, Banks did it before regulators pushed it largely out of the system back in 2013. The GECCs and Hellers and Fanovas did it until that model's reliance on leverage and market-sensitive funding proved to be fatally flawed. This iteration is much better. Locked-up, longer-term money allows the lender to work with borrowers through the business cycle. And all of that dry powder... Keep many more firms afloat longer than otherwise would be the case if a bank, or more appropriately a bank's regulator, or a market-pressured lender was making the decision. That figures to reduce defaults, all other things being equal. Moreover, we've talked in the past about how rolling mini-default cycles have washed out weaker competitors over the past eight years in energy and retailing, and oh yeah, COVID eliminated another slug. And let's not forget that all of that pandemic-driven monetary accommodation that kept interest rates at super low levels allowed many firms to restructure their liabilities, resulting in lower rates and longer maturities. That, too, will keep default rates lower, we believe, in this cycle. All this by no means is meant to suggest that defaults will not rise as we normalize. A research piece published a couple of weeks ago, walking through what higher for longer means to credit, details all of the headwinds that the credit asset class is facing. But one bright spot for investors is that the weight on sentiment of spiking default rates we typically see in a recession should be lighter this go-around. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, the super hawkish skip. It's a reminder that the Fed intends to overshoot. Two, AT1s are back. The risk-reward is too good to ignore. And three, default dynamics. Private credit, among other factors, will dampen the corporate default rate. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our ratings reports and our latest research. And make sure you click on our piece published this week, Defending the U.S. AAA Credit Rate. It's an interesting read. We'll see you next week hello listeners join me van hesser kbra's chief strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast leading voices in credit where i'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets that's leading voices and credit with van hesser subscribe now